0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the New Books in African American Studies podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jared Piketty, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Professor Stephanie McCurry, a leading historian of 19th century America in the American Civil War era, to discuss her newest book, Women's War, Fighting and Surviving the American Civil War, published by the Belknap Press of Harvard University in 2019. Professor McCurry is the author of Confederate Reckoning, Power and Politics in the Civil War South, also published by Harvard University Press, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and winner of the Frederick Douglass Prize, the Merrill Curdy Prize, the Avery O. Craven Award, and the Willie Lee Rose Prize. She is also the author of Masters of Small Worlds, Yeoman Households, Gender Relations, and the Political Culture of the Antebellum South Carolina Low Country, which was the winner of the John Hope Franklin Prize and four other awards. She has received a Guggenheim Fellowship. And Professor McCurry is currently the R. Gordon Hoxie Professor of History in honor of Dwight D. Eisenhower at Columbia University. She grew up in Belfast, Ireland during the Troubles. We often think of war as a man's world, but women have always played active roles in times of violence and have been left to pick up the pieces in societies decimated by war. In this groundbreaking reconsideration of the Civil War, the award-winning author of Confederate Reckoning invites us to see America's bloodiest conflict, not just as pitting brothers against brother, but as a woman's war. When the war broke out, Union soldiers assumed Confederate women would be innocent non-combatants. Experience soon challenged this simplistic belief. Through a trio of dramatic stories, Stephanie McCurry reveals the vital and sometimes confounding roles women played on and off the battlefield. We meet Clara Judd, a Confederate spy whose imprisonment for treason sparked heated controversy, defying the principle of civilian immunity and leading to lasting changes in the laws of war hundreds of thousands of enslaved women escaped across union lines upending emancipation policies that extended only to enslaved men the union's response was to classify fugitive black women as soldiers' wives regardless of whether they were married offering them some protection but placing new obstacles on their path to freedom in the war's off- aftermath the confederate grant uh, excuse me, the Confederate Grand Dame Gertrude Thomas wrestled with her loss of status and of her former slaves. War, emancipation, and an economic devastation affected her family in, intimately. and through her life, McCurry helps us see how fundamental the changes of reconstruction were. Women's war dismantles the longstanding fiction that women are outside of war and shows that they were indispensable actors in the Civil War as they have been and continue to be in all wars. Thank you so much, Professor McCurry, for joining me this afternoon.
1: It's my pleasure, Gerard. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: You, you begin Women's War with a personal reflection on your childhood and adolescence in Belfast, Ireland, during the era of the Troubles. And I'm wondering if you could speak to how the early years of your life shaped both your intellectual and personal interest in the study of women in war.
1: Um, Thank you. Yes, uh, it took me a long time to get around to confronting that directly. And this is the first time, this is the first book where I have actually uh, written, however, briefly about that. Um, So, as you mentioned, you know, I was born in Northern Ireland under British occupation, and I grew up in a Catholic neighborhood in West Belfast in the Falls Road, which was at the heart of the Troubles, starting in the late 1960s. And so when I was a child uh, and into my adolescence, when we went into the we immigrated to Canada, um, I lived amidst a military occupation, literally in my city, my neighborhood, um, and also a kind of struggle over the legitimacy of British occupation of Northern Ireland. Um, and this was just foundational to my, it, it's a very, it was a very political education. I was a political child as was everybody in, in many ways in that world. Um, and I, but, you know, among the things that I took away from that, or I learned at an early age is that there's violence that's called legitimate, like what the British army does, and there's violence that's called illegitimate, like a, a rising against them. Um, and uh, so this question of violence and legitimacy and political legitimacy was really clear to me as, at an early age. Like, how do you make that work? And so was a fixation on power. It was exercised so directly, um, so violently, um, obviously, between occupiers and the colonized, the Catholic Irish Catholics who were cast as an inferior race, believe it or not, um, and British uh, occupiers. But the other thing that I don't understand how I saw it so clearly as a child, the other thing was it was clear to me that men had all the power, even though women were involved in this um, rising, this insurrection, also this anti-colonial movement, there were plenty of women involved in it, both politically and militarily in the streets. We had um, famous leaders like Bernadette Devlin, who was a college student who took the political leadership. Of the movement in the uh, in the late 1960s, and yet we lived in a profoundly patriarchal society. Uh, families, homes, the way the way women were treated, the way they were treated by the church, by the state, by their own husbands, their fathers. It was so deeply patriarchal Irish Catholic culture in Northern Ireland and in the Republic. Um, and so I was always mystified by that. Like they're not more important people. Why do they have all the power? And uh, so for me, the question of gender and power was always there with race and class. It was always there with colonial colonizer and colonized. The the world seemed like a fourth field of power. And I had to figure out um, where justice, I, I was on the side of people who were attempting to enact justice for their own communities. And that included women, but nobody really seemed to recognize that, and the history certainly didn't either.
0: In the prologue of Women's War, you write, quote, there is no idea more powerful in Western culture than the idea that women are outside of war, that they belong to the realms of the family and of peace, not to the state in war, end quote. The idea that women are outsiders in war constitutes one of many historical myths that you shatter in this book, and I believe that the field of American history owes you a great deal of appreciation for taking this falsehood to task once and for all. But where and when did this idea originate that women are outsiders to war, and how has it reared its ugly head time and time again over the course of Western history?
1: Well, it's a really difficult myth to tackle because it's both Transhistorical and transcultural, like so many things that have to do with women's history. And I think this is very difficult for historians because historians are trained to think about, to talk about time and change. So what do you do like with the asymmetry between men and women, which takes a bunch of different forms, but which is always an element of every society in every era. And it's the same thing with this idea that women are outside war. I mean, if you read the play Antigone, from the very early uh, pre-Christian era, uh, you will see this same this same uh, representation that the woman figure who is present Antigone, who is presented as a savior figure, is um, you know, uh, she has nothing to do with the civil war that's going on in her society, one in which her one brother is uh, loyal to the king and one is a traitor the position that she is ascribed is the one who has to honor her brother regardless of what the state says and so she does and she pays a very heavy price for that and that's really you know lionized and recognized in antigone but underneath that is an assumption that women belong to the family that they don't have anything to do with the politics that creates civil war or with the rivalries and retaliations that come the, come with war so she belongs to the realm of the family and kinship not uh, uh not politics and the state and um you know it's i think it's related women are not recognized as central political figures or actors they don't make change in that way historically and uh war has been central to a central driving force in uh in the histories we write and they aren't recognized as central actors in that either and i think you know, it's a trans-historical and transcultural idea, and it's um, very, very hard to tackle. And I think the reason, you know, it's tied to, in the modern period at least, as I understand it, it's tied to two very, very deeply and dearly held beliefs. One is that there has to be limits on the destruction of war. So if you, if you have to recognize that women might kill you as well, and that they might be just as um, militarily threatening and dangerous as men, then it's very hard to see any edges to war, like home front, battle front, for example. So there's there's that. I think it's a way of putting uh, 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 sticking to the, uh, um, believing in the idea that women are outside war is one way of putting limits on the destructiveness of war. And we see this in the laws of war. And the second, Belief that it undergirds that undergirds it is um is it's essential to the gender order um the gender order which is premised on the asymmetry and power between men and women and if women are uh equal actors in war or central actors in war um then they aren't the domestic figures who can be um uh, constrained and controlled as the daughter. The wife, the mother, and so marriage as an institution, a trans-historical and transcultural institution, always tied to heteronormative uh, um, power relations, uh, would would disappear if we. It would be threatened if we recognize that women are central uh, actors in war. So I think it's both things. It's the dist- it's limiting the destructiveness of war and keeping faith in the gender order, constantly renewing our commitment to it.
0: Before we dig into the book and its many themes, I wanted to ask you, why is it that you believe that African-American and white women's lives and experiences have until very recently uh, been relegated to the margins of histories of the American Civil War, if mentioned at all? Is it that their stories are nowhere to be found in the archival record, thus making the task of historical reconstruction and recovery of their lives virtually impossible, or have their stories always been there, just waiting to be told, meaning, in other words, that the historians who have written extensively about the American Civil War, you know, the vast majority being white men, that they've chosen to overlook their voices and views as they pertain to the war in the era of Reconstruction?
2: Um,
1: well, you know, you, you've offered two choices here. Are their stories not really represented in the archive, or are they there and they're ignored? Um, I think it's more the, the second uh, but it's some of the first, um, but it's mostly the second. In the sense that um, it, it's partly the first, in the sense that what kind of archives um, uh, record the history of war, um, and the and our reliance on the on those records. So if you say, is, is it that their stories are nowhere to be found in the archival record? Um, you know, you have done research in military records, for example. So, military records are—you aren't going. Women are not uh, recognized by the military as the sex, as the central actors. So, um, there's women in those records, but they're not—they're not the cent- they're not the centrally identified uh, players. So, it's like picking through a haystack looking for a needle. They're there, but they're never um, most of what's going on in there. Um, but really, I think it's the second thing that the stories are there, and historians don't notice them um, because they're not—they're not—they're not interested, and they're not trained to recognize uh, the way in which power between men and women is shaping every story that they're actually writing about. I mean, if you believe that relations of power are central. Uh, uh, to the making and writing of history, then why wouldn't you be writing about power between men and women? There, I, can't, I can't think of one hi- historical event or process where it's not relevant. The thing is, not enough people see it, um, and I think that's the that's the issue. Uh, so on the one hand, it's that state generated records, like military records, um, have their own logic. And that logic uh, involves the marginalization of women. And then historians come along and they reproduce the logic of the state archive. You know, in, for example, you uh, African-American women's history of pursuing emancipation in the Civil War doesn't belong in any uh, state narrative, Union or Confederate. So they're doing it, but nobody's focusing on them and they show up in the records, but they show up as a problem, as an encumbrance or a humanitarian crisis. You can write that story and obviously people now are, but first you have to see it and you have to pick through the military record to find it. And I, I just love it because there's people out there doing civil war history, Uh, all different kinds. The Voli glimpse, obviously, in her marvelous recent book, but also people like Amy Stanley, who are using the congressional records or the records of the War of the Rebellion. I mean, Mm -hmm. these are not like obscure records. Uh, And there's an enormous amount of material in there um, that we can use to write women's histories of that period and gender histories of that period. You just can't let the archive and the state uh, authorities dictate the story which is, I think, you know, why so many uh, historians who use these archives basically reproduce the logic of the archive itself. And in that logic, women are marginal actors.
0: Absolutely. I think that that provides a really uh, interesting way to segue into the first chapter of the book and the women that you introduce to your readers in the first chapter uh, some of these women, like Clara Judd, Sarah Jane Smith, and Kate Beattie, who actively participated in perpetrated war on the Union Army, uh, often to the great surprise of Union Army soldiers and officials, at least in the very early years of the Civil War. And I'm I'm wondering, in terms of the your discovery of these women's you know experiences and actions during the Civil War, as you were reading these historical records themselves, but in what ways did these Confederate women make war on the Union, and how did that defy what had previously been written about them? I mean, I think it, it offers a really interesting way to expound upon what you said just a few moments ago about state uh, records that are produced at the state level and the ways in which they have historically marginalized the voices of women. But when you encountered women like Judd and Smith and others who were actively taking up arms and engaging in warfare in a number of different ways, Um, what was your response to that? And also, uh, in, in all of the different ways, what was their role in perpetrating war on the Union army throughout the civil war?
1: Well, I mean, here I was using, um, military records, including the war of the rebellion and reports on military, um, activities. And uh, in retrospect, it shouldn't have been that surprising. Historians for a long time have recognized that the Civil War was a people's war, that it was a war, it became a war of occupation, people rise up against occupation, even if they don't have an ideological commitment to the Confederate cause, more people will join once they're occupied. So it's both things, it's true believers, and it's also people who are fighting against uh, resisting occupation. And... You know, what would make us think that in a in a people's war like that, the only people who rise up and rebel are um, are men. And, you know, to go back to my own childhood, I knew that wasn't true. So you read the military records and there they are. There's women doing the same kinds of things that they do in partisan forces in all uh, in 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 all different kinds of wars, including into the modern period. And. Um, uh, especially in guerrilla war and war in occupied territory. So what are they doing? The army reports are littered with references to women luring soldiers into ambushes, cutting telegraph wires, uh, and engaging in other acts of sabotage, all kinds of spying and smuggling, but especially conveying military intelligence, the kind of underground work that women do in partisan forces across the modern period, and which the armies end up having to attempt to control so they don't begin by expecting to have women as their enemy but they're confronted with it and they very reluctantly and unevenly begin to respond and acknowledge that these are women who who matter militarily that their actions matter militarily Um, and so that's really the subject of of that chapter is um how the union the assumption's union army officers and ordinary soldiers went in with that we don't make war on women and children that they're the wives and soldiers of rebels they're not rebels they're the wives and soldiers of their wives and and daughters of rebels so they're confronted with women who are ideologically committed to the cause i mean that was one of the shocking things about um, moving into the south for union army uh, uh, for the union army officers and soldiers is that they start to realize that and they all say this that women are the worst secessionists, are the most ardent rebels, and true believers in the cause. And um, we have an old literature that acknowledged that. It just didn't really follow out the logic of that. Uh, so then they have to respond, and that was this. It's a very. It's it's actually a far more consequential story than I realized because it, as I discovered, it bears directly on the rewriting of the laws of war during the American Civil War.
0: I think that's a really great way to introduce some of the truly fascinating characters that you discuss in Chapter 1, both in terms of the the enemy women who engaged in war against the Union, but also the Union Army (laughs) officials and soldiers and legal theorists. And among those Folks that you talk about, I really found General Henry Halleck to be one of the most interesting. So I was wondering if you could give our listeners an idea of who Henry Halleck was, and in what ways his memorandum of March fifth, eighteen sixty three, dramatically redefined what acts constituted, and perhaps more pointedly, what persons could be tried for crimes of war.
1: Yeah, well, Halleck is pretty interesting, and I, you know, there are biographies of him, obviously, but um, I, I had a So I knew certain things about him, which I think are very common. You know, he's a West Point educated uh, man. He is involved in the army in the antebellum period, including in the um, occupation of California and the admission of California in the late 1840s and 1850s. And then he is... um, uh he styles himself as a bit of an intellectual. He he has written on the laws of war before the Civil War. He translates one of the big German um, military theorists. Uh, and so he has a bit of a reputation. He has an interest and a knowledge in the laws of war, and he has written it. But before the war, um. He's a a mining. He, he also has a lot of interest in California. He the papers in the Bancroft Library. There's not that many of them, but they're really fascinating because he's up he's up to his eyeballs in mining disputes in California. He's a lawyer, um, so that's really interesting. But you know his military history is that um, he's he's the commander of the Department of the Missouri, which includes Tennessee, Missouri, places like that, and so he's in the middle of the eruption of guerrilla war at the beginning of the war, and it's extremely out of control and hard. There's no, there's no sort of handbook about what are you allowed to do to people who fight you but don't fight you in uniform? Like, do you have to recognize them as prisoners of war? Can you execute them on site? And there's women mixed in among these. Um, so there's a lot of confusion about what the army is actually allowed to do. And so Halleck is in the middle of that firestorm, and then he, so he has this on-the-ground experience, and he says it was, like, way worse than Mexico, because he was in the Mexican War, the occupation. Um, And then he becomes the general-in-chief of Union armies, and so he goes to Washington, and he's in charge of the whole operation. Um, So, but the March 5th orders of 1863, he writes while he's general-in-chief, but he's being consulted. By officers in Tennessee, uh, places like that, who are um, trying to deal with this people's war, they're they're fighting all these go- Confederate guerrilla and partisan bands, and um, and they keep having to um, arrest. La- by this point, they're arresting large numbers of women in these sweeps against uh, spy networks, smuggling networks, intelligence networks, also guerrilla bands. So they've got all these women arrested and they don't know what to do with them. They don't have any particular uh, rules about how to, um, how to hold them. Are they guilty of treason? And once women are guilty, guilty of treason, they're political actors, right? They're being recognized as significant actors in war. But the problem in the United States is that treason, as defined under the Constitution, is extremely hard to prosecute. So these officers are writing Halleck and saying, you know, we can't handle what's going on here. We need to have a, a, a. We need to have an order that tells us we have a right to hold these people, to to try them in the military justice system, court martial, to imprison them, uh, to execute them if necessary. And Halleck writes these orders in in March of 1863, basically laying down um, what they're allowed to do. And um, he's very explicit about the gender of it, that the gender of a person does not protect them from their accountability for these actions. And that has been the problem up to that point. You know, how do you how do you justify holding these women? So he writes these orders. And then, as I discovered in the archives at, at the Huntington Library, uh, in the Lieber papers, these these orders are literally transcribed into Lieber's code. So that was the archival discovery that connected the particular guerrilla war in uh, in Tennessee with um, and in the Upper South with uh, the laws of war. So that's that's where Halleck comes into the into the picture and where his field orders are um, have way more significance than any ordinary set of field orders.
0: Could you say a bit more, Professor McCurry, about Francis Lieber, who he was, and how his field orders dramatically revolutionized the laws of modern warfare?
1: Well, um, you know, Lieber was a, a Prussian-born German um, uh, man who was a uh, born in the early 19th century, fought at Waterloo. Um, he fought in the Greek uh, Revolution of 1821, but he was forced into exile from uh, Prussia because he was among this group of liberal uh, liberals who rose up against the Prussian monarchy. And um, so they were basically they didn't have any rights of free speech or anything else. And so he was he, he was prevented from um, t- a, a staying in the university. He was prevented from teaching there. So he, he was kind of forced into exile initially in England. And then, believe it or not, he came to the United States. And after a brief period in, in the North, he ended up teaching at the University of South Carolina, or South Carolina College, um, for almost 20 years, I think. Um, and he taught ethics and political, basically kind of like po- ethics, politics and ethics. He wrote a ton of books. Um, and just before the Civil War, to his great relief, he got a job at Columbia University in what is now the law school, where he was a professor of politics. And just as secession was breaking out, he was giving a lecture course on the laws of war, um, which governed the question of um, when 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 does a country have to be recognized as a sovereign, legitimate country by the laws of war. In other words, if you're engaged in a civil war, do the laws of war pertain? uh, Or if it's a civil war, are they, is it a free for all, which is the problem? That's what the problem Halleck ended up um, in the middle of. Um, So it's not that Lieber hasn't been written about, like he's he's very well known, and so is his code. I mean, there's many, many people who write in um, international law, who know Lieber, And they know his his, Lieber's Code because it was foundational to the Hague and Geneva Convention subsequently, but they don't really know very much about the context within which that code was produced. But I will say that a couple of years ago, John Witt at Yale Law School published a wonderful book on um, Lieber's Code called Lincoln's Code. in which there's an enormously interesting argument about Eman- Lieber and emancipation and the laws of war. My contribution was, again, as usual with me, to pick up on the way in which this question about gender and women's accountability for treason was central to the new laws of war that Lieber wrote. And this is where I saw in the draft in the Huntington Library that he wrote a draft that said nothing about women. Halleck's edits said, are you kidding me? This is a civil war. These people are in insurrection. See my orders of March 5th, 1863. And then Lieber added a whole separate section on civil war and the laws of war in civil war, where he incorporated Halleck's field orders, holding women accountable for a kind of treason that they created now to make it work, which they called military treason where the um, standards of proof for conviction were just uh, much lower and where they could be tried in a military trial. And I guess I would add one more thing to that. Like in the long run and looking at it in the big picture, the simplest way to put it and what interested me the most in writing this is that there had been a very long-standing association of women and innocents in war. That women are the essential non-combatants. The assumption is that unless proven otherwise, women are innocent. They're not combatants. So it ang- women's identity and gender and innocence anchors the crucial category of the non-combatants, people who have to be protected in war. And what Lieber's Code did is destroy the perfectness of that connection by saying some women are innocent, some women are not.
0: I think that was one of my favorite things about Women's War is your writing style and particularly your ability to illustrate not only your vast knowledge of the political dimensions of the Civil War era, but at the same time, you never lose sight of the ways in which these policies and decisions played out in the lives of women across the racial divide on the ground. And so admittedly, as a historian of enslaved women, I personally gravitated most to chapter two, which was just so beautifully done. And in the second chapter, you, you capture how the American Civil War represented a fight for survival and self-liberation for millions of enslaved women across the American South, women who are typically nowhere to be found in histories of the Civil War, which thankfully we can say with the work of Amy Murrell-Taylor and Tavolia Glymph and others, it's th- those tides are slowly changing. Um, but the chapter is entitled The Story of the Black Soldier's Wife. And as a story both real and imagined, who was the Black soldier's wife, and how does her story fit into the larger narrative of the American Civil War?
1: Um, yeah, I, I mean, this is a, a place where the scholarship is just accumulating rapidly, and and really incredible, excellent scholarship, including the books that you just mentioned and others. Um, my part is a small part here, but it was really It was a recognition that came out of a very comparative reading, actually. It came when I was um, teaching a course at Princeton University back in the mid-2000s on comparative emancipation, and it started with Saint-Domingue, and I started to realize that, first of all, there was a direct connection that hadn't been, I don't think, the, the finger hadn't really been put on it between war and emancipation, that with the exception of the British, almost all emancipation in the 19th century happened in the context of war and as a result of that it would mean that um, uh, that that the, the, the link between war and emancipation necessarily had implications for women um, uh, and uh, if it's in other words if it's a military history and these are military emancipations and only men can be soldiers then what's the history of emancipation that we're writing here and what does it mean for women? And so I started to see, including in the San domingue case because of the work of people like Elizabeth Colwell, who's a good friend of mine, I was aware and Chris Brown, my colleague at Columbia, that there were emancipation schemes, some actually um, carried through with and others that were not. But even in Saint-Domingue, when, um, when the french republican forces wanted to win uh, uh enslaved men over to their republican cause and they promised them emancipation they promised them that they would that they would emancipate also any wives of republican soldiers but we know that slavery is illegal i'm sorry marriage is not a legit there's there's no slaves were were prevented from legal marriage it was not a legitimate um they they weren't legally allowed to marry so this is by definition a legal fiction so how do you prove that you're a wife if the law says you can't be a wife so this is the terrain i found myself in with the american civil war and when i was using the military records um it was clear that um the it was clear from the literature that the focus had come to be on black soldiers and emancipation But there's 200,000, roughly, Black soldiers uh, and sailors in uh, the Union forces during the war. But there's 4 million enslaved people. So this is clearly only a partial story of emancipation. It's the state-authorized story. It's the the story that comes out of the military records. But the military records, as always, like the OR that I used to write about Clara Judd and Halleck, They contain other things. Women show up in these records, even though nobody's interested in them. They don't have an ascribed role. So where do they show up in the military records of the Civil War? Well, they show up as these refugees, these followers of the army, these people trying to stay close to the army because uh, because this is a zone of freedom. Um, And so they're there in the records, but they're not being recognized in the narratives of the Civil War, which are only recognizing military laborers and soldiers as the as the key part of um, the key actors in the African-American struggle and the Black struggle for emancipation. So the question for me was, you know, um, and also... So the army has, they show up as a problem. They call them an encumbrance. They're literally an encumbrance on the army trying to move or in the, in the field or in camp. And um, so from the very beginning of the war, uh, commanders like uh, ben, ben Butler in, uh, in Hampton, uh, the, around Hampton, Virginia, um, have to figure out what to do with these women because they can't keep them out of the lines. They're coming in. They're not wanted, but they're coming and they're coming in increasing numbers and the very moment that um, uh, the army acknowledges that uh, that they will not return black in- enslaved men to their owners if they make their labor count for the Union military. So this is sort of a quasi or provisional freedom, a temporary status, a cancellation almost of the property claim of their owner. And then women come in, but the justification for holding these people is that they're denying their labor to their owners who are enemies of the United States. But how do you justify holding the women? So this is the dilemma that Butler um, faces in 18 in the spring of 1861, the summer of 1861. And in a way, it's a humanitarian challenge. He doesn't want to throw these women out of camp. He doesn't want to return them to their owners. So he basically at, uh, claims that they are the wives of the men that he has a right to keep. And he writes the, you know, the, the secretary of war looking for approval of an ad hoc proxy uh, solution, which gradually gets written into policy. Um, but it's a very, very messy business and extremely dangerous for the women. And, um, and on the whole, I think overall, it reflects this sort of patriarchal logic that, you know, if we're going to emancipate men, um, we should emancipate their families as well, but they need to be responsible for their families. It's, a, it's really a patriarchal logic um, of uh, of this. And it's a pattern that you can see repeated across the hemisphere from San domingue on in, pad, in, in cases of, of, of emancipation in war. The men, are, the men are all cast as, as, as potential soldiers, and the women as their wives.
0: In a, in a lot of ways, the second chapter reminded me so much of Tara Hunter's uh, brilliant examination of uh, enslaved women, uh, refugees and fugitives who, you know, in great numbers show up in Union army camps and in contraband camps and the ways in which their are the, the ways in which she reconstructs the personal stories and the ways in which the union army relied so heavily on their labors while intersecting this with questions about marriage and family. And what I felt was so great to, you know, in having recently interviewed her on the podcast is that it was, you know, fresh in my mind, but being able to see the policy implications of this spill out, um, it was a really, I think the two, they read so well together. Um, but I'm, I'm curious if you could say a bit more about why lawmakers and military officials, um, particularly Republican lawmakers, the ways in which the, the fiction of, of the soldier's wife, because as you write and about Particularly in the Mississippi Valley, I found Army Chaplain John Eaton's experiences of just tens of thousands of enslaved women, children, and men coming to the, the contraband camps and refugee camps, I should say, uh, after the fall of Vicksburg, I believe in the summer of 1863, um, that this was not only a humanitarian crisis, but that this there had to be some sense of order imposed and, and the way in which they chose to impose that heteronormative order was through the lens of the family. And so I'm curious if you could kind of bring us into the halls of Congress as they're debating this legislation uh, and how the ultimate you know, language of these laws came to be.
1: Well, I mean, the Militia Acts. I mean, this is one of the things that made it, this is another, uh, another aspect of this, is that you can look at the language of the acts themselves, the law. And they're they're profound, it's profoundly gendered language, right? You read the Militia Act, like I haven't looked at it for a while, but you read the first Militia Act and the second Militia Act and you can see there's a narrow zone of freedom that can be claimed and then a slightly wider numbers of people eligible to make claims based on this, these conditions or categories that are laid down and, and hovering over it all is, well, what are we going to do with these women? You know, do you really think that men are going to fight for the Union Army if, if, um, if, if, if uh, the army uh, returns their wives and children to their owners, recognizes those property rights. So it's a dilemma. It's related to what we were just talking about. Um, and so, you, you know, in many ways you can plot this, these changes and the problem that's bedeviling them and the solutions through the laws themselves. Um, but there's long lasting uh, problems because, you um, the one, the place where it really uh, is hard to solve is union, loyal unionists who are slaveholders. So in those four slaveholding states in the upper South, including Kentucky, where there's a large number of slaveholders who are unionists, there's nothing about the military policy or the, there's nothing about the war that provides... Uh, lawmakers justification for taking the property of those men. They're not in rebellion against the United States. They are not traitors. And in fact, they're represented in Congress, right? They have these incredibly racist Democrats representing Mm -hmm. them. They're powerful men. They're in the debate. And so they're able to protect those slaveholders and their property interests the whole way down. And in fact, Kentucky, which is like the worst place, To be enslaved, and the place where you're going to be enslaved for the longest, I believe it wasn't until March of 1865 that Congress finally wrote a law emancipating the wives of Union soldiers. And these are men who were in the Army. They could have been in Texas by that point where they were deployed. And their wives and children are at home in the clutches of these slaveholders, bearing, in many cases, the Being punished for the disloyalty or the 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 fact that their husbands ran away to the Union Army, they're being literally beaten, murdered because of this. And um, but their their owner's property right is still completely intact, and Congress is recognizing it. So it's really until the last months of the war. I mean, Amy Stanley and other people have written uh, uh, about this. Um, So it's a really incredible story and the women's testimony is read into the congressional debate so this is another case where you don't have you don't need news sources you need to use the most traditional sources the congressional record
2: mm-hmm. to
1: ask new questions or follow new stories new actors so um you know there's obviously many many more things you can use to talk about enslaved women in Kentucky who are you know very very late to have any right to claim uh, emancipation. But, you know, as it turns out, even the congressional record has that history in it. I think that,
0: as I recall some of the names of the women you talk about in Kentucky, I guess I was I was uh, confronted with the fact that I, I, I underestimated not only the number of refugees who, who sought shelter uh, within the Union Army lines and in such short periods of time as well, um, I, I remember there was, uh, I believe it was from John Eaton who said that the, the refugee women and children were, quote, armies in of themselves. And so not only did I find that to be, you know, it I guess there's sometimes a cognitive dissonance at times that you don't realize the extent to which this war of occupation um, just upended so many people's lives. It's it's one thing to read about it, but then to read someone who's witnessing it firsthand, I guess, is a completely different experience and engagement with history. Um, and, and in that way, too, I think reading the experiences of the women in Kentucky who were subjected to such obscene violence because their husbands or male relatives decided to fight for the union and, in effect, fight for their freedom. One of the women was Patsy Leach, who I remember you writing about in vivid detail that the day her husband, I believe, left to serve in the Union army that she was beaten within an inch of her life and that her owner threatened to continue to do so. Um, And so seeing the ways in which uh, I, I remember you introducing this subject at the beginning of chapter two, and I made a note to myself to ask, what about the women who were held in loyalist territories? And then at the end of chapter two, you just delve into that and the complications that this had for women like Patsy and others who their the routes to emancipation were different, that they were distinct, and that the possibilities for freedom were different, but that so much was on the line for not for all enslaved women, but for women who were uh, the slaves of loyalist owners, it was a particularly precarious situation they faced. Um, and
1: also, you have to, you have like, just one thing I just want to mention, mm-hmm. because it, it, it is so fascinating, like, you know, we, so now we, what you just pointed out, huge numbers of women, Eaton says, they're like a horde, an army coming in, an army of invasion themselves. And they, that so there's all these people who are on the move, who are taking, you know, uh, se- seeking freedom with their feet, taking incredible risks. Like they don't know what they're doing. And uh, I mean, they don't know what they're going to. And nobody's on their side. And, you know, Savolia Glims uh, in her new book just does such an amazing job patching together all different kinds of records that allow you to actually know some of these people and follow their journey. Um, So there's all of them. And then there's that group you just mentioned, people who have no legal claim till the bitter end and can't grasp emancipation by any legal means. The only thing they can do is run away. They can't stay where they are. And then there's another whole group of people that I wrote about in Confederate Reckoning who never leave the plantation. So. You know, uh, and who fight for uh, emancipation exactly where they were to start with, because think about it, like I always ask myself this question We're all, human beings are so unpredictable, right? Like if a union gunboat is going to come up the river and you know you've been signaled in a say, a low country South Carolina plant rice plantation that in eighteen sixty three or eighteen sixty two for that matter A boat's coming up the river. And if you're in the right place at the right time, you might actually be able to get on that boat and go back down to Union held line. So I've seen plantations where this happens and half of the people go and half of the people stay. And, you know, that's just human nature. Some people have more tolerance for risk. Some people are going to stay because other family members are there, but it isn't always family units that go. There's an element of human we you know we we as historians we're really good at talking about contingency but are we really what what do we do about personality you know the fact that some people have a high risk tolerance and a, a appetite for risk and others don't so there's another huge number of people who i think have not really figured very clearly in the emanci- the war for emancipation and that's the people who fought that war on plantations and that was part of the reason that i wrote confederate reckoning um, because it isn't just about the Union Army and who makes it to Union lines. Some a lot of this is going on against the Confederacy from within the Confederacy.
0: Absolutely, and I believe it was it. It's because of you and Professor Glimp's work that plantations themselves are seen as 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 sites of of the war as well. That they these were insurrections, I believe you said from within. That w- scholars have often not fully fleshed out in their examinations of the Civil War and particularly African-Americans involvement in in these conflicts. I wanted to spend the last few minutes with you today to talk about chapter three, uh, the third and final chapter of Women's War, which offers a truly fascinating rendering of the life of a former Confederate woman named Gertrude Thomas and her attempts to rebuild her life in the years following the Civil War. Um, you write, you Offer the following words in the closing remarks of chapter three, you state, in its outlines and especially its intimate details, Gertrude Thomas's ground level unfolding and emotional account is a valuable reminder of the volatility and uncertainty of the post-war Southern and American world and of the fundamental, even elemental nature of the reordering underway. So I was hoping that we could spend the last few minutes we have together together to discuss who Ella Gertrude Clinton Thomas was and why you'd made the decision to foreground her life in the final chapter of your wonderful new book.
1: Um, yeah, thank you. This is the part that I continue to work on, so I'm really happy to talk about it, and my thinking is evolving all the time. So Ella, Ella Gertrude Clinton Thomas is not an unknown figure to those of us who work in Southern history, and um she for for reasons that are just really handy which one of which is that she uh wrote she kept a very very long diary of her life that goes from it covers like at 40 years and it goes from the antebellum period when she was a young single woman through her marriage through the civil war into reconstruction and all the way down to the late 19th century and there's uh a published a redacted published version of her diary which is available people use it to teach and i have for y- years and the um introduction to that book was written by Nell Irvin Painter and it's a really really wonderful introduction um, as you could imagine so it's about this white slaveholding woman and this unrepentant confederate uh, but the introduction's written by um Nell Painter so it's fantastic and she's not let off the hook for anything. But there are even things I learned about Ella Thomas that, uh, that Nell didn't know when she wrote that. She had her suspicions about but didn't know. And, and in any case, um, so I had always used uh, Gertrude Thomas's um, diary mostly to teach about the antebellum period because she has this section called Women, 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 Slaves. Something. It's it's basically about. Um, it's really about the way white slaveholders, wh- white male slaveholders, sexual power over slave women poisons life for all the women, black and white. And it's it's mu- it's a much more interesting diary to me than Mary Chestnut. It's um, it, she's just less predictable. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but the postbellum part, the Civil War and postbellum part of the diary. And I always knew in my mind that this was the really dramatic story. And um, the reason I decided to write about it was that it was one way of scaling down the the, the history of Reconstruction, which is, you know, as you know, um, one of the canonical topics of American history. With some of the best historians of you know the century and now two centuries writing on it, including and especially, of course. Uh, Web Du Bois, is that this is just a truly canonical subject and it's massive. I mean, it's it's daunting. Like, how do you it, it, the, the history of Reconstruction has really been written um, in 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 some cases beautifully, but as a matter of political economy, and it's very meta in it. The historians who do it, they're very meta in their approach. It's about politics. It's about labor. It's about power. And one of the things that really strikes me over time as a feminist historian is that um, the destruction of slavery, the attempt to actually destroy slavery as an institution and remake a society based on uh, an equal claim to be free people with dignity and human rights and civil rights and political rights um, that that Du Bois and Foner and other people have written so beautifully about. that this was not just a struggle that went on in Congress or state legislatures or even just on farms or plantations in the field, but inside human beings and between human beings over incredibly intimate matters. So it begins with the recognition, and you can see this with Gertrude Thomas. So the value of, the, of her diary is that it is a woman's perspective and, perspective, and in that way, it necessarily blends the political and political economy, the big meta questions of land, labor, race, capital, with very intimate matters of love, belonging, family, sexuality, incredibly intimate matters. And so part of what I wanted to convey, or, or I'm, I'm still thinking through, it sounds crazy, but it's really the recognition that the destruction of slavery took far more, was a far bigger and um, more challenging process than even historians of reconstruction have yet grasped, in part because they only grasp it in relation to its public presentation. But if we grasp it in relation to its private and intimate dimensions, it's even more daunting. So to give you one example of what I mean, Um, So, for example, I I like now to think about not reconstruction, but reconstructing an ongoing active process of attempting to make new lives, new persons, new families, new homes, new societies. It's almost a utopian project. And one example of this, the way that the grasping um, what happens in intimate relations is relevant to this is that when Gertrude Thomas, uh, when her plantations are being um, occupied by Sherman's army, so at the moment that the destruction of slavery hits her at home, her father dies. And he's very, very wealthy, one of the wealthiest men in Georgia, and he's always bankrolled her. She's just daddy's girl. And he dies, and she's devastated. And all her life, in between, in the pages of her diary, there's been this worry about who's the father of the, as uh, she calls them, the white slave children on my father's plantation. And she names these people, Lorraine, Lorraine. she says, and her daughters. And she says they're as white as any white people. And she wonders in her diary who their father is. And she spends her adult life fending off the idea that it's her father. But when he dies and his will is read, it's quite clear that he is her, their father. And I subsequently found the will in Georgia. And the uh, so in her diary, she doesn't say the details of the will. She just says that she's devastated. And she stops writing in the diary for like six months. She's completely devastated. She has a crisis of religion and belief, she says. And so Nell Painter knew that. And she was right on top of this in her introduction a, a number of years ago. But when I found the will in Georgia, it confirmed it. Not completely explicitly, but he left these children, this woman and her children, and only those people, to two male friends in town. He didn't free them. He tr- he transferred title to them to him, they, them, the men. He left them money to look after the women and children. And he told them, he also put a, a coda in his will that said if any of his children challenged this, they would be disinherited. So it's pretty clear they were his children. And in one of the really amazing turns of events, after I published the book and I was doing research in the uh, Freedmen's Bureau records in Georgia, I discovered that the fifth person who went into the Freedmen's Bureau court in Augusta, Georgia in July of 1865, the the fifth person, okay, the first day it opened, the first day that black people in Augusta could get justice not through the civil process, because they weren't allowed, but through the Freedmen's Bureau, a woman who identified herself as Mrs. Lorania Clanton, wow. black, colored, as the document says, went in there and told the Freedmen's Bureau agent, John Bryant, that she wanted to open a case against the executors of, her, of Turner Clanton's will, because he was the father of her children and she had been promised property under his will, and that those men still held her children in slavery. So this is astonishing. I didn't even know this when I wrote Women's War. I knew they were his children from the will. But this is her self. Now, so the, so the issue here is, if we read the daughter, Gertrude Thomas's, whole account of how she's grappling with um, recognizing, you know, letting go of her possessive claim on Black uh, the people she had owned, adjusting to the recognition that they have rights and independence. They can leave her. They can reject her. They can take their children with them. They can form their own families, marry whoever they want. They can refuse to have anything to do with her. Uh, this is a process that's going on within one family as it becomes one giant slaveholding household collapses and becomes a kind of microcosm of this whole process of what reconstructing involves, and underneath it is the recognition that um, her whole reaction, everything to the everything about this, is conditioned by the fact that there are these sexual, uh, there are these sexual um, uh, relationships and relations of coercion and exploitation that are finally being acknowledged in public. And it's really amazing because I think one of the things that you can see by looking at an individual and her relationships with individual fl- enslaved people, African-Americans now free, is that the damage from slavery, um, and especially the sexual violence of slavery, really set a deep explosive charge beneath every negotiation over the over the terms of freedom in the post-war South. So. You can't disconnect what slavery was from the struggle to make freedom um, substantive, and it doesn't just have to be enacted in terms of oh, you write the Thirteenth Amendment, everybody's free, go forth and find your own, you know, form your own families, make your own households. You have to extricate your people, your children, from the homes of those people who who owned them and still claim them, Um, and I think it really brings us into a new recognition of how challenging it was to make something like the 13th Amendment real, even in terms of a minimal claim of like, now you will have a right to marriage, a free marriage and free homes. And so this, I think we are really in a position where we can begin to recognize the enormity of the task. And um, in this sense, it brings me Around to wondering if we do recognize the enormity of the task, which I think we will only really recognize if we grapple with these intimate, including sexual um, uh, histories that bear on emancipation, and also the sort of reconstruction of subjectivity itself and of love and belonging. You know, what is love? Who? What is belonging? What is a family? Um, that when we do recognize this, I think we come face to face with the enormity of the task that uh, emancipation involved and reconstruction involved. And in a way, it makes me wonder why so many historians, almost everybody, have been so willing to pronounce reconstruction a failure. I mean, a task that's so daunting and so enormous, and we're operating on a binary scale of success and failure like what would success be and why is it a failure so it's bringing me around to trying to think about a how to write a new history of reconstruction that's focused on that really takes the stock of the intimate and intimate relations in a feminist kind of way and um, and see how that undoes our common assumptions about in the historiography, like, for example, that it's a failure, and how it might open our eyes newly to the nature of the struggle, the accomplishments of African Americans in moving this claim forward and making it real for themselves. I don't know. I'm just really excited about that. I feel like there's so much we can do and so many new kinds of examples about how to do it from a lot of them from black women authors themselves, writing about other, other times and places, but teaching us to think about how these intimate relations are at the very center of historical struggles, not peripheral minor elements of it.
0: That reminds me so much of, you know, I, when I, think back to preparing for comprehensive exams is I think that's what everything that you just said reminds me so much of Leon Litwack's interpretation of reconstruction and how the lived experiences of individuals become the historical canvas in which he reconstructs this very challenging and tumultuous period um, from the individuals who were at the center of this drama. Right. And so I, I really, Enjoyed the, the phrase you wrote at the end of that chapter that um, her personal history reveals a much larger history, and that there's something to be said about examining massive historical events like Reconstruction from the perspectives of individuals at individual places and at individual times. And so, the last question I wanted to ask you today is can readers, eager readers, anticipate a Reconstruction era sequel? or a companion to women's war in which you delve more deeply into these intimate and granular experiences of formerly enslaved women and possibly the female slaveholders who had formerly held them in bondage and how they, as you say, actively reconstructed their lives and made sense of this new world uh, in the years to come.
1: Um, Yeah, that's what I'm I'm doing now. And the work is just so um, amazing. I mean, it's overwhelming and daunting. I mean, I'm working in Freedmen's Bureau records right now and in plantation records and um, other kinds of um, Black church records and other kinds of things, Black newspapers, and basically trying to find a way to um, manage the scale of the research with a design of keeping individuals or small groups of individuals at the center of each chapter and each element of the story. So I just wrote an article for an anthology that Nancy Cott and Margot Kennedy and Robert Self edited called uh, On the Intimate State. And I wrote an essay called Reconstructing Belonging about the 13th Amendment at work in the world. And I lay out there some of the ideas of chapter one of this book um, that I'm trying to work on, that I am working on now. Um, And it's just really, really interesting. Um, I don't know what the chronology of it is yet, because I think that this is a post-war story that goes beyond the political, the ends of political reconstruction, you know, it goes beyond 1877. Um, And I also, I'm very um, reading a lot of um, the new literature on Black women's history and theory to try to Teach myself, you know, how to grasp and how to explain the intimate, and
2: so that's what I'm working on now, and um, trying to uh, uh, work out the outline of a of a big book on this that keeps individuals and the matters of intimate relations at the center of the story uh, I tell about reconstruction. And one of the things that I'm doing to kind of educate myself or help myself to do this is reading as much as I can in black women's history, comparative and theoretical stuff also in literature, um, where the question of the intimate and intimate relations is, um, more centrally connected, I'm sorry, more centrally, um, taken on and, um, stuff like, um, Sadia Hartman's work and Jessica Marie Johnson's and, um, uh, what was I reading today? Uh, Christina Sharp, people like that, but also stuff I've learned from and borrowed from for years by Ann Stoller and other people. So it's really, really a fun project. I'm so excited about it, but it's very daunting too, because it's a huge archival undertaking and I want it to be a narrative history and a really readable book. So I'm learning as I go, but really enjoying it.
0: Well, thank you so much, Professor McCurry, for joining me today. It was really such a pleasure. And I hope that the next year brings you continued health and happiness. And I look forward to reading your next book as well.
2: Thank you, Jared. And best of luck with your own work. Sounds really interesting. Thank you. Take care.